Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. This week we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Vatican's declaration about priests granting blessings to include same-sex couples. We'll talk about that, uh, but I, w- I want to start off talking about the Colorado Supreme Court. I live in Colorado. And so this happened recently. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump was ineligible for the primary elections because he was um, he, he was involved in an insurrection. Okay, that's the that's the idea. All right, that's the gist of their ruling. And so they're striking him from the Colorado primary. And um, you know, there's a lot of concern about number one: will other states? join this movement, do similarly, um, and will the Supreme Court strike this down? Okay, so um, I'm not a legal expert, but looking online at the opinions of other legal experts, it does seem like this will most likely be struck down because the court is a a bit more conservative than it is liberal, um, but also because my understanding is that the legal argument here is very thin. Okay, and that seems to be the pattern. Obviously, Trump has been indicted multiple times. He's, I think, he has like three or four cases that are ongoing where he's being sued and tried for different things. And um, you, there's, there just really appears to be an agenda to get this guy. And obviously, if you're on the left, you would argue that's because this guy breaks the law a lot. Um, frankly, from my perspective, it this really seems like a miscarriage of justice. Okay, it seems like the weaponization of the legal system, right? It, it's the same thing that I used to criticize Roe versus Wade about, right? Roe versus Wade gave every American a constitutional right to an abortion. And, you know, the Constitution is not that long and it's not that hard to understand, right? The Constitution does not give every American a right to an abortion. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about that. And so you can see there's clearly this like legal manipulation to you know get laws passed. And what it is what what it's doing is it's circumventing you know the way it's supposed to happen which is through the Congress, right? The Congress is, is supposed to create the laws um, and then the courts are to make sure, right, that the spirit of the law is followed. And so when the courts you know circumvent that and and, and in fact they go beyond to actually contradict the spirit of the law so that they can essentially pass their own laws that you know it's called judicial activism um it, it, to me it is it, it is the complete corruption of the judicial system okay it's where judges are doing the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be doing and it seems very likely to me that that is exactly what's going on in the Colorado Supreme Court. And frankly, it's what's been going on um, in, in primarily with the Democratic Party in general. Okay, um, I'm very concerned about this, and this is a terrible precedent. And um, you know, the hope is that the Supreme Court will overturn this. Okay, and so man, it it just seems like. <laughs> President Trump, in his one term in office, was able to seat three Supreme Court justices. It is just insane how important that has proved to be. 
<laughs> it's crazy. And, you know, it was the main thing that Christians like like me and, and many others were concerned about and praying about for years. We felt like the importance of getting conservative Supreme Court justices um, was so important. And uh, right now, it does appear like this is saving the, the union. If we had not been able to get like conservative court justices, and if there was a, a dominant liberal court right now, I mean, it would be really hard to have hope <laughs> for the future. Because, um, you know, I've, I've said that I do think all the woke Marxist stuff has reached its high watermark. I think it's it's being pushed back right now. But the reality is they're still the dominant force, right, in American politics, in American culture right now. And they've had the momentum for a long time. So what we need is we need time to push back culturally. I think that's that is happening right now. Um, but if they had already seized too much control of all these powerful institutions like the Supreme Court, then frankly it would have been too late. So it it from my perspective it appears that this was like <laughs> just in the brink of time, right? And we have just enough power you know, in places like the Supreme Court to start pushing back, right? And um, and so I am hopeful that we are going to make it through this thing um, without a hot civil war, even though I would very much argue that we are currently right now in a cold civil war. Um, my, my strong hope is that it would not become an actual shooting war. And, and frankly, it, it, it would have been. Frankly, it would have been. And it's still very well could become a hot civil war. Um, but we're going to see, right? We're going to see. We're going to see how all this plays out. Until now, I'm just so thankful um, that we did have Trump appoint some conservative Supreme Court justices. I'm so thankful that the church, you know, really devoted itself to prayer and to voting on these things. Um, I think when we look back, you know, in the history books of heaven on all this, um, man, we'll be so thankful for the church in this hour, those who really stood um, on their convictions and distrusted all this, you know, mass manipulation that's been happening in the media for the past, you know, decade or more at this point. Okay, so I just wanted to touch on that briefly. I will, I will say in parting on this issue that Vivek Ramaswamy has declared that he will remove himself from the Colorado primary if it's not overturned in the Supreme Court. That's a great move. Like I said, Vivek has really been impressing me. Um, I'm really impressed with Vivek with DeSantis. Um, Trump, I've, I've said I've said this before. Um, I think Trump is going to be the nominee, but Trump really is a wild card. <laughs> I mean, you could tell he does not have solid convictions. I, I just told you know my friend yesterday that you know the smartest thing the Democrats could do would actually be nice to be to Trump because look, Trump's major conviction is that he's nice to people who are nice to him <laughs> and he fights against people who fight against him all right that's um that's what he does and so the democrats you know because they hate him so much and they're fighting him so much are ensuring that he does not team up with them but i personally i don't think he has the convictions you know <laughs> to to in to fight with them if they didn't fight with him so much right if they wanted to make a deal trump would make a deal with the democrats i think almost certainly um so it's it's just amazing from my perspective how this is working out. <laughs> like it does from my perspective it really does seem to be orchestrated by God. Um everything that's happening and um and I'm thankful. At the end of the day I'm really thankful and hopeful um that we will push back 
and um, that we will see the Constitution really restored to a place of honor, that the corruption will be rooted out. That's my hope. Um, we're going we're gonna to see how this all turns out. Okay. Um, the second piece of news I wanted to touch on before I got into the issue with the Vatican is um, what's going on with Mike Bickle. There have been, you know, more people have jumped into it. Um, Sam Storms, who is, you know, a theologian and pastor that's worked with Mike Bickle in the past, has basically come out and said that he um, believes Jane Doe and very much wants to see an impartial investigation happen at IHOP. And um, and that's concerning because this is another credible, trusted, national-level leader that is essentially, you know, throwing their support against Mike Bickle, <laughs> something like that. And so frankly, it's just it's just really concerning. So um, I've said this before, we don't know what's going on here. From my perspective, um, I still am, you know, skeptical that Bickle is guilty about this, but it's possible, you know, we don't know. So, you, you know, my position is let's wait until, um, you know, all the evidence comes out. Let's, let's hope that there is a fair and impartial investigation into all of this. And um, and let's pray, pray that the righteous would be vindicated and justified, that any lies and deception would be exposed. You know, things like this, it's just so difficult to know what's true and what's not true. I will say um, I believe in what IHOP has been doing and what Mike Bill has been doing, you know, for the past several decades, right, which is... Um, you know, setting the model for houses of prayer. I strongly believe in the house of prayer model. Um, it's simply calling the body of Christ into a greater place of prayer and worship to make it more central to the life of the church. I think it's such an important goal. And so my prayer is that through all of this, that that purpose would not be hindered, would not be defeated. I don't see how it can't be at this point because so many people are now launching, you know, are, are uh, casting IHOP as, you know, the villains, and, you know, of course that's going to cause people to be suspicious of their initial agenda. Like, was it from God, or was it always demonic in origin? And this is always the, you know, the problem with these types of things when there's so many accusations and stuff like that. So my, you know, my advice to anybody involved in this is, is, you know, let's be careful. Let's not try to assume that we know the truth about these things yet. Okay, I know some people have some very strong suspicions. Let's keep it in the realm of suspicion, um, but let's be careful about this. Okay, and you know one of the reasons is because there really is a chance that this could be false. Um, you know, this this could all be false. All these allegations, and um, the reason I say that is because every hero in Scripture was falsely accused. Okay, so from my perspective, you know, Mike Bickle, who by the way has now come out and said that he did commit sexual immorality. 20 years ago, but he has pretty much denied, it was pretty clear that he denied the newer allegations of misconduct and, and abuse and things like that. So the, the stakes are, are laid at this point, right? Mike Bickle is either lying, <laughs> um, in which case he is covering up the truth and he's been deceptive for a long time, and there's a real danger of being a predatory type leader, okay? Or he's being falsely accused, and this is, you know, this is all drummed up, and I don't know what's the truth about this right now. And in this place, I'm just going to say I'm praying that the truth would prevail. Um, but my encouragement would be, you know, let's be careful before we jump to assumptions 
in either case, and let's just give this time to prayer. And um, I believe that the Lord is the head of the church and that it is right that, um, you know, any type of hidden abuse or sin should be exposed, right? It should, and there should be amends made. What amends can be made should be made. Um, But I also believe that there is, you know, that the goal of the enemy is to cause division, is to, you know, stir up these things. So, frankly, even if... um, you know, this happened, and it's a good thing that it's all coming out, right? Even if that's the case, um, the way that it comes out, the way that the church handles it could result in great devastation for a lot more people, okay? And um, and conversely, the other way, right? It, it, if, if the allegations are false, then frankly, it's already resulted in a lot of, of damage that is not healthy. So, these type of situations are really so difficult and dangerous, and, and I really feel for a lot of the believers that are involved in this because there's so many people um, that that love IHOP and that have been part of it, and we don't know how many people you know have potentially been abused. We don't know. So, Lord, we just pray that right now as you're purifying your church, Lord God, that you would give us wisdom, Lord. We want the church to be purified. Father, we pray that all unrighteousness and hidden places that is really destroying these communities from the inside with sin. Lord, we pray they would be exposed and they would be healed and they would be fixed. But Lord, we also pray that any false allegations, any um, unrighteous judgments, Lord God, would also be exposed, Father. Lord, we just pray that righteousness would prevail. Lord, ultimately, Lord, we believe that you are the great judge and you know, we all see in part and know in part, but you're the only one that knows the true intentions and motives of our hearts. And you you know all things, so Lord, we put our hope in you. And Father, would you use these hardships to train the body of Christ and to teach us to be holy and righteous like you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So today, the, the main subject that I want to talk about is um, this new proclamation, this declaration that's come out from the Vatican. Okay. And so obviously this is in the Catholic Church. Okay, what I wanted to get in today was the declaration by the Vatican. And um, what, what uh, first of all, I want to clarify what they did and didn't do, okay? The main thing that they did not do is that they did not change the theology of the Catholic Church to now bless same-sex marriage, okay? They're actually very explicit in the declaration that this blessing that they are now advising priests to give is not to be confused with blessing a same-sex marriage, right? The Catholic Church, is, you know, is very much against same-sex mas- marriage. Um, the Pope, Pope Francis, has made it clear that marriage is between a man and a woman, okay? So what this declaration did was it expanded the times or the role of blessing, okay? And the idea here is that you know, Pope Francis, when he, you know, walks down the street in his motorcade or whatever, <laughs> okay, and, you know, and he's in a big mob of people, he blesses lots of people, okay? And the idea is that he is not giving them a test on their morality before he blesses them, right? He's just blessing them as individual people, okay? And so the the idea there is that the Vatican wants priests to be able to bless same-sex couples in that sense, okay? And that is, um, you know, that that seems to be what their heart is, okay? Um, that they want the church 
the Catholic Church in this case, to be more inclusive and welcoming and to be able to bless people um, and without necessarily saying that we're approving of you having a same-sex relationship or something like that, okay? All right, so this is me trying to do my best to communicate what, you know, I'm trying to present them in the best light here, okay? Um, now, of course, many people are interpreting this as the Vatican taking a step towards blessing same-sex unions, right? That's how many... Um, you know, websites and news articles are kind of painting this, that this is a major development um, by the Catholic Church in taking a step towards blessing LGBT unions, okay? And um, and and I think that that's fair. And it, it brings up this issue of mortal sin, okay? So the conservatives who understand what the Catholic church is saying, and I'm talking about conservative Catholics, right? The conservatives are saying this This presents, um, this creates a lot of confusion over this issue, right? It creates a lot of confusion, right? Because if you're a Catholic priest and a gay couple who's married comes up to you and says, Father, would you bless us, right? Um, before the instruction, you know, would have been something like, well, we can't bless something that the Lord has condemned, right? If you're in a state of what Catholics call mortal sin, right? Meaning it's like a major sin. And if you continue in this state of sin without repentance, then you will go to hell, right? And so we can't bless you um, in this state, right? As a couple, right? And maybe as an individual, if you just want a blessing, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how it works with Catholic priests if they could bless. But, you know, this issue of what does it look like when a same-sex couple comes before a priest and asks for a blessing? Well, it, it looks visually like they're blessing the union, <laughs> right? So it creates, it creates confusion, and um, especially over this issue of, of it being a major sin, okay? Now, in Protestantism, we don't have a strong doctrine like this on the issue of, like, mortal sins, right? Major sins versus minor sins, all right? In Protestantism, we generally just say, hey, all people are sinful, and then when you come to Jesus in, in repentance, of, of repenting as, a, as, as being a sinner, I recognize that I'm a sinner, all right? Then, you know, we declare you saved and, and, and righteous, right, on the, on the basis of faith alone, okay? Now, I, I have to say, I think there are major problems with the way that we as Protestants do this. Meaning, I think that Catholics, in their understanding of mortal sin, of this idea of these major sins versus minor sins, my feeling is that th this is something that is important that has largely been lost in the Protestant Church. Okay, and I'll and I'll give you you know I'll give you an example of why I think this way. Um, I had a discussion with a pastor in Southern California. Um, who had a a couple that was gay and that was married and that was at his church, all right? And they were not on paid staff at his church, but they were on leadership, lay leadership. They were volunteer leaders at his church. And to me, that was very concerning. Um, and, you know, I asked him about it. And I said, hey, I, I don't understand. Like, what is, how can you allow this couple who is gay and married to be at your church, right? And his response was something like this. Well, it, it, I still recognize that homosexuality is a sin, okay? But my position is that all Christians sin, 
All right, this was his 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 position. All Christians sin, so we can't pick out certain sins. You know, what about the person who is you know looking at pornography, right? What's what's the difference there? Okay, and um, when he responded in that way, I responded with, "Hey, but I think there's a there's a difference between practicing sin and struggling with sin, right?" So, in the case of the person that looks at pornography, right. I would imagine this person would consider this a sin and that they would, you know, repent, right? I, I looked at pornography, I repent, and then they may stumble in, in again. But so long as they regard it as a sin and they're struggling against it and they're repenting when they stumble, I think that there's grace and there's mercy for that. This is my position, okay? That it's okay to struggle with sin, that you can stumble with sin, and I, and I believe that you can even fall into that sin, you know, often, right? And as long as you continue to regard it as sinful and you are trying to stop, okay, I see that as, I see that as essentially okay. Again, I'm, I'm not approving of it. I don't think it's, it's healthy, right, or the best. But the point is this. I think all Christians struggle with sin, okay? And as long as we're struggling with it, I think there's grace, Okay. That is to be contrasted with this idea that I am practicing sin. That's where I no longer regard it as sinful, and I'm, and I'm openly engaging in it, right? And that's where I would say that gay marriage is, okay? So, for example, in this case, I have no problem with somebody who struggles with homosexuality being part of my church, right? They're very welcome to be part of my church. And, you know, they might struggle with homosexuality, and... I would, I would say, hey, there's mercy and there's grace for that. We're all struggling with sin. No problem, right? Welcome to the club, okay, of Christians who are trying to become more like Jesus and, and grow in our holiness, okay? But if that same believer came to me and said, um, Pastor Dennis, I no longer regard homosexuality as a sin. And in fact, I'm getting married um, to another man. If, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gay and I'm, I'm a man being married to another man. Then I would say, then you, can, you cannot be at our church, Right, because that to me is crossing the line from struggling with sin into openly practicing sin, and it's the same way for you know, lest I be accused of I just have the thing against homosexuality. This is also true um, if somebody divorces, right? If somebody says, "Hey, I, I was never in love with my spouse, and I've decided that um, we would be happier if if we divorced and I remarried this other person," then then I would say, you know, um, it that's not a biblically sanctioned reason for divorce. And you cannot be part of our church if you're going to leave your spouse for another person and expect that we would now recognize your new marriage. My position would be no. I will not recognize your new marriage. From my perspective, you are still married to your original spouse and you are an adulterer who is not struggling with adultery. Like we can forgive an infidelity, right? If you sleep with somebody else and you repent, you recognize it as wrong, right? We can forgive an infidelity, but what we cannot forgive is a state of practicing sin where you're still married to this new person, okay? So that's my understanding, okay? Um, but in having this conversation with this pastor, um, you know, he was not open to that argument at all, okay? From his perspective, all Christians sin. We don't make a distinction between major and minor sin. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I do need to acknowledge a point that he was making, although I disagree with his general point, which is this idea that we do have to make a distinction between major and minor sins, 
okay? Um, you know, in the Protestant church, the way I was taught when I was, you know, in high school is that there's really no difference between sin, okay? And to be clear, I had some different people teach me some different things on this, but one of the things I was taught when I was younger, I remember I had one, one person teach me there was no difference between sin, right? All sin um, is, it condemns you to hell, right? And so it doesn't matter if it's, if you consider it major or minor, or sin is sin, okay? Um, I now strongly disagree with that position, okay? I think the Bible is actually very clear and explicit that there are differing degrees of sin, okay? Some sins are, are really major to God, and some sins are not as important, okay? And to be clear, nobody can earn their way to heaven by being good, okay? We all agree on that, <clears throat> But I think the Bible does make a distinction between majoring and minoring sin. And and to be frank, I think all of us do, okay? I think anyone who claims not to is is living in some weird religious world where they're not, they don't actually act like that, right? What I mean by that is simply this. Like, as pastors, we know that people are struggling with relatively minor sins in our church, right? Like, struggling with jealousy, struggling with gossip, struggling with you know, with lust, struggling with these types of things. And and that's okay. They can be an upstanding member of our church. No problem, okay? But if somebody's struggling with murder <laughs> in your church, like, you know, uh, you know, Pastor, I murdered again last week. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I just can't stop, right? It, it I think it would be hard for us, you know, as pastors to say that, oh, you're just a Christian struggling with sin. There's no problem, right? We make a distinction between bigger sins and smaller sins, right? If you have someone struggling with murder, <laughs> they can't really be a part of your church, right? Right? Um, and, and there's a number of things like that, right? Um, if they're, if they're bigger sins that rape or like, you know, or embezzlement, they're stealing money, you know, every week. They <laughs> just keep stealing all the offering. I stole the offering again last week, right? Like whatever, you know, like we, we would say, hey, maybe we can forgive this once. <laughs> okay. Maybe we can forgive it twice. I don't know. But we're going to, we're not going to have as much grace and mercy on, on some bigger sin like that as we are on somebody, you know, struggling with jealousy, right? A minor form of jealousy. Okay, and so my my point is this: that I I think Protestants um, need to come to reality with some of this stuff. Okay, there is a difference in terms of more major versus more minor sin. Okay, and we all live like this. Okay, um, but what I'm what I'm getting at in all of this, okay, is that when the Vatican says, hey. You should feel you should be encouraged, in fact, priests, to bless these same-sex couples when they ask you for blessing without making them pass some type of morality test. Okay, what they're doing is they are, you know, blurring that line between major and minor sin, right? Because obviously, you know, the priest doesn't, you know, if 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 two men come forward and go, can we have your blessing? The priest doesn't need to be like, well, you know, have you have you told any lies? in the past five years, right? Have you been jealous? Have you coveted your neighbor's property? <laughs> it's like, they don't need to, uh, you know, take them through a whole morality test on those types of things, okay? But if, if you know, if we're talking about, you know, if Osama bin Laden, you know, right after 9-11 had come up and asked a priest for blessing, you know, it, it, it I think it's reasonable if the priest was like, well, have you repented for, you know, orchestrating this terrorist attack that killed, you know, thousands of people, right? Like, there, there, there is an expectation that before we bless, 
Like, we're not going to bless. Like, if Hitler came to us for a blessing, should we just be like, oh, yes, bless you, my child, right? Like, should we bless people that are obviously in an open state of major sin? This is just as true for Christians, you know, Protestants, as it, as it is for Catholic priests, right? Should we should we bless them and give the public blessing? Like, I bless you, my child. <laughs> right? like, and, you know, this is this is blurring that line, right? Because what the Vatican is essentially saying is, hey, we don't want you to see this couple, these two men are coming that, you know, you know are married. We don't want you to really see that about them. We want you to consider that a minor aspect of who they are, right? Not a major one. And then we want you to go ahead and bless them, okay? So that's what it's doing. It's blurring that line. And, and you know, a lot of conservative Catholics are upset about this, right? They're upset about this because they think it's causing confusion, which it is, all right? It's causing major confusion. You know, it is a step towards blessing same-sex unions. Um, more immediately, it is a transgression, in my opinion, of 1 Corinthians 5, Okay, 1 Corinthians 5 is where Paul tells us that anyone who claims to be a believer and yet continues to practice sin, okay, that we should not fellowship with them. Paul says, don't even eat with such people. Don't even eat with them. Do not fellowship with them. Do not be friends with them. No, you are to expel them, okay? You're to expel them from the community. And the problem is that, you know, as a church... I know lots of churches that do not practice this. And to be fair, I do know a number of churches and pastors that do practice this. Good for them, okay? Um, and to be fair to many more liberal, you know, um, believers, like there are churches that are too, um, that use this as a tool of control, right? Like if you, you know, didn't pay your tithe this week, you are excommunicated. <laughs> I would say that is you know, that is uh, an abuse that is using this passage to justify that type of abuse, okay? So does that happen? Well, sure it does, okay? Some of that stuff is going to happen. But my point is this. It's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It is clearly instruction for believers. I know churches that that have never practiced this, have never kicked anybody out, have never disciplined somebody that they knew was an open sin, okay? And they And it's because they believe that that is unloving, Okay, that's quote-unquote unloving. And that's, uh, my problem here is now you're changing the biblical definition of what it means to be loving, right? The problem here is you're trying to be loving to people in a way that God is not loving. And you're making the argument because God is love, this is not how he would act when the scriptures are explicit that this is how he does act, okay? This is why people get tempted to go all the way into, you know, there is no eternal punishment, right? Like, there is no, you know, like hell, we should not be afraid of that, okay? But the scriptures are very clear, we should fear hell. It is a terrible consequence. It is a terrible punishment. It is a terrible judgment that we should be in fear of. Right? Because the God who is love will do this. All right? So that's why if we start to change our definition of God to fit what our 21st century definition of love is today, we are transgressing the scriptures. Okay? And that's my issue here with this ruling. Okay? If you have a gay couple that comes to you and asks for blessing, I think it is more than fair to ask are you in a home? Are you having homosexual relations? Okay. 
are you, you do you do you know that homosexuality is a sin, right? If there's a strong suspicion that they are a gay couple, okay, then I think that's that's exceedingly fair. Why? Because if they claim to be believers and yet they're practicing sin, then not only are you not to bless them, you are to kick them out. You are to kick them out. They are not to be welcome at your church anymore. And to be clear, I'm not talking about visitors, okay? I'm not talking about visitors. If they're visiting your church, okay, they're interested in learning more about Jesus, but they do not claim to be Christian, okay? In that case, they're welcome, but they should not expect to receive any type of benefit that is only for believers. That's my issue with this, okay? Are we communicating to people, and especially to believers, that if they are in a practicing state of sin, that they should be handed over to Satan, in in the words of Paul, they should be handed over to Satan, all right? And this this is what he says. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 5. He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, Okay. And what he's talking about here is the yeast represents sin and how sin, when you tolerate it in a community, it starts to infect the whole community and then it puffs them up like bread. It's full of hot air. You look like you're a lot of bread, but you open up the bread loaf and it's all air. <laughs> it's just for show, meaning they look, they look righteous on the outside, but on the inside, it's all puffed up pride. Okay? So I think Paul... Is, is very explicit about this. I wrote to you in my letter, this is verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay? So he's being very explicit. I told you before, do not associate with sexually immoral people. And then he goes on to clarify, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Okay, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Okay? This, in my opinion, is one of the most important things as a church that we must do in this hour. We must expel the wicked believers, those who claim to be believers. We must expel them, okay? Now, I have to clarify here because there, there is a group of people in the church that are really passionate about labeling other people as heretics, right? And in my opinion, they're going to an opposite extreme here. Okay, they're really, they love 1 Corinthians 5. They're like, yes, expel the wicked person. And by the wicked person, I mean the person who disagrees with you about your doctrine of baptism. (laughs) You know, like, let me me try and clarify these lines because I'm I'm making a strong case. We need to have clear lines of fellowship, right, in the church. We should not be on the side of those who are just like, you know, come to Jesus, anybody come, be part of the church, right? You're welcome here, we love you, your family, right? Before they ever repent for anything. And the answer is no, they're not family, okay? They're not family. And frankly, this is the side that, you know, Pope Francis and a lot of more liberal believers are are on, where they want to just be, just talk about the love and the mercy of God all day long, and they don't want to talk about his, his justice or his judgment or his holiness, Okay, and 
this is the criticism. This is this is what First Corinthians five is for them. Okay, no, you must have standards of holiness, and you must expel the wicked believer because otherwise it causes confusion. And if you allow wicked believers, people who are practicing sin, to be part of your spiritual family, part of your church membership, then what happens is the other members of your church will also become infected with that yeast, that leaven, okay? And it will puff them up, all right? And this is the this is the warning that Paul has given. It's the same warning that Jesus Right, gave to his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the sin of the Pharisees. Right? In that case, it was that hypocrisy, all right? That incredible religious pride and hypocrisy. Okay? But it's it's beware. Don't let don't get infected by this thing. And the way that you don't get infected is by it is you expel the wicked person from among you. Okay? All right. So I I'm, I'm hope that's clear on that side. On the conservative side, we also we need to not expel people who are not practicing sin. <laughs> okay, in my opinion. Okay, so a good example I think is Rick Warren. Okay, Rick Warren was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but he believed in ordaining female pastors. Okay, and he you know wanted to do that even though that was against the policy of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, and so the Southern Baptist Convention held a vote and they expelled. Rick Warren from the convention. Okay, now to be clear, that's fine. Okay, there's no problem with that. If they if they want to have a doctrinal, you know, boundary there where they have no women pastors, they have the right to expel Rick Warren from that convention. Okay, that's totally within their rights. No problem at all there. Okay, my criticism would be for those that argued that Rick Warren is a heretic and not a believer. That's going way too far, in my opinion. Okay, and you know, to be clear, Rick Warren, you know, he he made this argument where he said, "Hey, you know, let's defellowship over issues of sin, not over issues of of minor doctrine and practice." Okay, and I largely agree with you know what he says there. Um, my my only caveat on that would be the Southern Baptist Convention. It's okay for them to have doctrinal standards for their for their convention. Right, so long as they recognize that Rick Warren is a fellow brother in the Lord, he's just not a Southern Baptist, right? And just in the same way that I assume that they would regard other Christians who are not Southern Baptists, right? If they're Presbyterians or Assemblies of God, they would they would regard them as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? But they're not part of our Southern Baptist Convention, okay? And that's fine, okay? But my point is this: I believe the church needs to be careful about defellowshipping over doctrinal issues, okay? That, to me, is is a, a major problem that I see in portions of the church where they're quick to defellowship over doctrinal issues, okay? That, to me, is really problematic. In fact, I think what the church is doing right now, what I believe the Lord is doing in the church, is he's bringing forth a great reconciliation in the church, Okay, unity, right? I've I've talked about this before, but you know when Lou Angle's talking about the great communion revival, this is the idea of the great revival of unity in the body of Christ. Okay, and I believe there must be a reunification between the major branches of Christianity. I'm talking about with Catholics and with Orthodox believers. All right, and look, some of this is going to have to do with our doctrinal differences because this has been a historic barrier in the church. And let's be honest, in the Protestant church, this has divided us like crazy, right? There's been a lot of division amongst Protestant circles because we defellowship over the time, all the time, over minor doctrine. 
okay? And that is really not healthy, okay? And, you know, we've defellowshipped from Catholics. A lot of Protestants would regard all Catholics as being heretics and not being saved. I think that's, I think that's majorly problematic, in my opinion, okay? To be clear, I think there's lots of people who claim to be Catholic that I would, that I don't expect to see in the age to come, okay? I don't, I don't believe are true believers, okay? But I definitely think there are many Catholics that are true believers, and I think there are many Orthodox Christians that are true believers, okay? And again, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think it has to do with what our definitions of faith and the gospel are, okay? My understanding of what the gospel is is that it is the good news that Jesus, all right, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he has been given authority over all of heaven and earth, and that by putting our faith in him, that we can be saved, okay? And so the definition of faith there, there matters, right? I would define faith as the allegiance to Christ is manifested in obedience to his commands, all right? Those, so by my definition, those who are genuinely and earnestly surrendered to the lordship of Christ and are genuinely trying to obey his commands, okay, I would regard them as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, even if we disagree on doctrines, you know, like, I don't know, baptism and, I don't know, there's like a lot of other ones, right? <laughs> okay, gift of tongues, <laughs> like a million minor doctrines. I could say, like, to me, that's okay. As, as long as I could see that they are genuinely trying to follow and obey the commands of the Lord, and they're they're in good in good faith, meaning they're not you know twisting the commands of Scripture right to fit you know their their modern morality and all this kind of stuff. But I see that they're really submitted to the authority of the Scripture and to obeying Jesus. Okay, then that to me makes me regard them as a fellow believer in the Lord. I, I won't say that that's the only issue. I do believe there are matters of doctrine that are important, such as the resurrection, right? Believing in the resurrection of Christ. There are, there are major doctrines like that that I believe are very important. Um, my only point is this. I do believe that these historic divisions need to come down. And I believe that the Lord has an agenda to bring great reconciliation, a great a communion between all those that belong to him in the face of the earth to undo the generations of, of division of how the church has been dividing more and more and more and more and more. I believe there's going to be a, a coming together as we near the end of the age when Christ will return. I believe that God, that Jesus is returning for a mature bride and healing the divisions is one of the most important aspects of, of becoming that mature bride that Jesus will return for. Okay? That's my understanding. All right? So, in that spirit then, okay, should we defellowship, you know, from the Pope? Is, is the Pope, you know, who, who made what I think is a very bad ruling, or at least gave it his approval, right? Is he... You know, is he a believer? Is he the Antichrist? Okay, <laughs> I've been asked this several times. Um, I would simply say this. Um, is the Pope the Antichrist? Uh, no, no. The simplest answer to that is no. Um, if what you mean by the Antichrist is the ultimate Antichrist that is spoken about in you know the book of Revelation, right? The final ultimate Antichrist. Because the Bible does talk about not just one Antichrist, but Antichrists, right? That is, is in there's multiple Antichrists, okay? And... The best way to understand what the Bible means by that is, you know, an antichrist is a counterfeit messiah, 
Okay, that is the best way to understand what it means, all right? So in Jesus' own time, it meant those who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah that led revolts in the first century, okay? That, those would be examples of antichrists, okay? No, I'm the true Jewish Messiah, right? Follow me, make me king of Israel, okay? And, and I'm the one that the prophets spoke about, okay? That would be the antichrists, okay? Is Pope you know, Francis, the Antichrist? And the answer is no, no. I, 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 my understanding of the final ultimate Antichrist is that he, he has to be followed by a lot of Jews, okay? Like, many Jews have to believe that he is the true Messiah of Israel, right? That would be my understanding, all right? Um, there's more than that, okay? But that is one of the big, the big signs of the ultimate Antichrist, in my opinion. Okay. Now, is a is is the Pope a lowercase antichrist? Well, I think there's a case for that. <laughs> okay. Without, I'm not trying to demonize him more than necessary in this case, right? But you know, one of the aspects of who Christ is is the head of the church, right? Jesus is the head of the church, and um, you know, there was many arguments made by the reformers back in the Protestant Reformation that the Pope then was the Antichrist because he claimed to be the head of the church and he usurped the authority of Christ in, in many ways. And, you know, I think there's a legitimate question, does anybody who sit in the seat of the Pope, you know, who who, who has that title today, is that person a Antichrist, a type of Antichrist? I think there's an argument there um, for a yes. <laughs> okay. Um, personally, I don't feel comfortable saying that the Pope, the current Pope is an antichrist, you know, might the Lord have a different opinion? I think it's possible. Okay. I think it's possible. I think anybody who would claim to be the head of the church, um, you know, I, th I think that's dangerous. Okay. I think it's dangerous. Right. And to, and to be fair to, you know, modern popes, I don't know to what degree they would claim to be head of the church. Right. Like I have to assume that, that all of them would, have some language of saying that I'm, you know, maybe I'm the head of the church amongst men, <laughs> but Jesus is the true head of the church. I I would assume that all of them would acknowledge that, that Jesus is the true head of the church and that it's more, I'm, I'm, I'm the successor of Peter, right? Being in, you know, being the, the foremost among the apostles or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. I, my, my, my only point is this. I, I don't think it's, it's helpful to, you know, demonize almost anybody today as being the Antichrist. You know, I've heard people say that about, you know, Barack Obama. You know, I'm sure some pastors are saying it about about Biden today. And I, I just don't think it's helpful to label these people as Antichrist. Number one, I think it it really waters down. What does it mean to be Antichrist? <laughs> you know, I think it distracts away from the true biblical warning of what the whole thing about Antichrist is. Okay. I, I think we should try to understand Antichrist in the original usage of it and what it's warning about in the potential future, okay? Rather than label anybody who is, you know, working against what we think is God's aim today as, as being Antichrist, okay? Now, it's possible. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say there's no use for that term um, today amongst people, but I'm just saying I think that Christians can be really quick to throw that term around, and it's more of like, you know, it's more of like the, the biblical boogeyman, something like that, and I, I don't think it's helpful in a lot of circumstances to be labeling, you know, political leaders antichrist all over the place, okay? That's just my personal um, 
my personal stance. All right. Now that being said, um, should we defellowship from people like the Pope? Like, is the Pope an actual Christian? I, I think that's a that's a fair question. Honestly, it's a fair question. Okay, and I, I am not able to give a, an answer to that. I have not studied this Pope well enough to know his his doctrine, his theology on a lot of issues to be able to tell whether it's major or minor. I don't know is my honest answer, okay? I don't know if we'll see the Pope in heaven, okay? Um, I will say this. I am concerned about, like, I don't trust this Pope, <laughs> okay? I don't trust this Pope because the Pope is obviously kind of liberal, right? All right, the Pope is kind of liberal, right? So I do not trust him. He's clearly trying to take the Catholic Church in a more progressive type of direction, okay? Um, the previous Popes, um, you know, Pope John Paul II and um, Ratzinger, um, I, Benedict, okay, that was his, his, his name when he became the Pope. Okay, they were both um, very conservative in the sense that they saw Marxism and progressivism as very dangerous forces, and they were really fighting against a lot of it, okay? Now, to be fair, a lot of that was, you know, in the context of, of Cold War, if we're talking about, you know, Pope John Paul II. And I, I think he was, you know, a very legit believer in my opinion, okay, from what I know of him. What we saw was that, you know, the last Pope, Pope Benedict, he was a strong apologist against liberation theology, all right? Now, I debated how much I should get into liberation theology in this podcast. I'm, I'm just going to touch on it briefly. I'm not going to do an in-depth thing on it, okay? For for the purposes of our discussion here, liberation theology, it, it's best understood as, as the mix of Christianity and Marxism, okay? It's Christian Marxism, in my opinion, <laughs> okay? That's liberation theology in a nutshell, Um to you know, summarize it, and, and forgive me because there, this is going to be a little bit of a straw man in the sense that you know I'm 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 characterizing it um, quickly, and and I'm not giving it justice, but I'll try to to give some. All right, um, but liberation theology is a way of reading the Bible through a Marxist lens. Okay, so f- through the lens of a Marxist, you see the world in terms of the oppressed and the oppressor. Okay. And from that vantage point, you see a lot of verses in the scriptures that talk about how the Lord is on the side of the oppressed, right? The Lord will defend the poor and the upright. He who lends to the poor lends to the Lord, right? There's lots of verses that talk about this type of thing, okay? And so you read that and you're like, God is on the side of the oppressed. And now you start to read the Bible as a story of oppression and oppressor. So Israel was you know, under the oppression of the Egyptians and God was on their side. And then he blessed them and they became powerful and then they started to become oppressors and God was against them and started to judge them and warn them and all this kind of stuff. So the idea is that God's on the side of the oppressed and Israel is an example of that dynamic, right? But ultimately that Marxist worldview is the one that the Bible is supporting, okay? Um, and again, I apologize because that, that I can understand how that can seem kind of an unfair characterization from those who hold to this theology, okay? But the reality is there's, there's a, you know, there's a, um, a gradation of to what degree people hold to that. Like strong liberal theologians will see it like that. Like straight up, we need to wage war against the evil capitalists and join them and help them. Why? Because God is on the side of the oppressed and we have to fight for the side of the oppressed and support communist revolutions, right? There are liberal theologians that go that far, okay? And then there's kind of more moderate um, 
people who are influenced by by this type of theology. Okay, I would stick you know Francis in that category. I don't think he's a full on communist revolutionary priest. <laughs> okay, uh, it doesn't seem to me like he goes that far. But again, I'm I'm you know confessing that I'm not super familiar with all of his stuff. I've I've read some of it. And I've I've looked into some of it. From what I've seen so far, it seems more he's a, he's a moderate person who sympathizes with a lot of the language that liberation theology uses. This idea that God's on, like we should support the poor and care about the needy and place a heavy emphasis on that, okay? But without going full Marxist and we need to support con- like these revolutions and stuff like that, okay? So that's where I think he is. And to be fair, that's where a lot of Protestant Christian pastors are, <laughs> okay? They're in that same kind of place where they're very influenced by that, right? Before, um, when I was in college, I was a student at, at Berkeley and I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And it seemed like the main message there was social justice. That was the main message of the fellowship. We talked about it almost every week. And at that time, I didn't really understand why we talked so much about social justice. It seemed to me that there were other very important things in the Bible that we were ignoring, but that's because I didn't really understand. For social justice, I just interpreted that as, as being charitable to the poor, right? Helping the poor, right? Doing charity, serving them. And those are all things I believe in, right? So I wasn't initially against this emphasis on social justice, but as I came to understand it and see the fruit of that teaching, and I came to understand more of the the Marxist origins of a lot of that type of language, that's when I started to realize, oh, this this is not a good influence on the church, okay? And in my opinion, it really twists the scriptures, all right? It twists it so that you see it through that Marxist lens when that's actually not what those scriptures are intending to convey, Okay, so from that perspective, is Pope Francis a Christian? I don't know. I I hope so. I hope so. I don't know. In humility, um, should we defellowship, you know, from Catholics at large or those? And my answer is, is no, not initially. Okay, like like I said, like I'm hopeful. I want to have unity with anyone who's truly a believer, and and in the same way that I think there's lots of Protestants that. Are, are they really are trying to follow the Lord genuinely, but they've been very influenced by all of this social justice preaching, okay? And they're very influenced by those ideas. And I think, um, honestly, I think they're just deceived, right, uh, on, that, on those issues, okay? To be clear, like, they can be great believers in other areas, all right? I think on this issue, they, they can be deceived, um, but I would still regard them as, as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, Okay, and and I think I should try. We should try to have unity with them in so in so far as we can. Okay, um, now where I draw that line is when anyone starts to teach that you can be saved and yet practice major sins. That's where I draw the line. Okay, and that's because that's where I see the scriptures drawing that line. Right when it's talking about preaching. Grace as a license for sin. Okay, that's where I draw the line. Okay, so I do not feel comfortable speaking about other, you know, pastors in the body of Christ that are saying you can be, you know, openly gay, you can be in a gay marriage, and you're saved. You can be a member of our church, right? No problem. That to me is is very destructive. I don't feel comfortable fellowshipping, okay, with those believers and those leaders. Okay, I don't feel comfortable with it because that's where I see the scriptures drawing that line. So again, to me, it's not an issue of having differing doctrine. Like, 
if we're talking about different doctors, we're talking about like, you know, do you think it's, it's, which is wiser, right? To get fully dunked when you're baptized or to be sprinkled with water. Okay. I don't see either of those options as, as sinful. Okay. Like I think getting fully dunked is wiser because it actually represents, you know, what, what it's supposed to represent the death of being buried under the, under the ground. That's what the going under the water represents. Right. So I, I, I see baptism. I think baptism should be full, full immersion. Okay. But the ones who sprinkle, I don't consider them as sinning. Right? I don't think they're sinning. All right? I just think they're not doing it right, if I had to guess. Okay? It's a difference of, of doctrine. Okay? But when pastors are teaching and, and, and excusing major sin, pr- the practicing of major sin, then to me it's not an issue of, of minor doctrine. This is an issue of, of sin. right? And um, that's where I think we should be drawing the lines of fellowship. Okay? And and this is why I'm very concerned about progressive leaders in particular, because there does seem to be this tendency in more liberal churches, okay, to condone these types of especially sexual sin, okay? And again, I'm, I'm speaking primarily here about, you know, homosexuality, but also of divorce. I think divorce is a, is a big one, okay? Because I think the scriptures are pretty clear about divorce also, right? Jesus is very clear about it. He says anyone, right, who, who divorces his wife, makes her an adulterer, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, this is Jesus who says this, all right? Um, I, I, it seems to me that we cannot allow somebody who just left their spouse for another person to be an upstanding member of our, com- of our community, right? If they're living with a new person, like, no, we cannot allow fornication. Those who are living with their boyfriends and girlfriends, all right? They're sleeping together regularly. no. No, that is not okay. And if we teach that that's okay, that God's mercy and grace are so great that they extend to those people, they're welcome to be part of our, our, our fellowship, they're, they're, they're leaders in our group. No, that is where we have to defellowship. We have to split on that issue, okay? That is my understanding, all right? And I, I say that in humility, but those lines have to become clear in the body of Christ, Okay, because we can't have true unity without understanding the proper boundary lines. Right, so that's my hope. You know, for you know any of these Catholics, what I do see is I do see many strong conservative Catholics. They're upset about this and that speak very strongly on these things, stronger than many Protestants. Okay, that are. Like, hey, this is this is wrong. This is sinful. I I do think in our culture today, homosexuality is the de facto dividing line, because there's so much cultural pressure to accept it, and those Christians that have caved on this issue have, in my mind, compromised beyond what is acceptable. Okay, that to me is the line, and 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 I'll just be honest. Many of those people that embraced social justice theology have been led to compromise on this issue. Okay, so I I, I can. I have a lot of guesses as to the links why that would be the case. But I'm just simply saying, to me, you can be kind of woke in your theology, be about helping the poor. Like, that's that's not necessarily bad, right, to emphasize the need to serve the poor and help the poor. The problem is when it starts to drift into a more Marxist, you know, worldview that stops seeing Scripture as the ultimate authority, and then you start to compromise in areas of major sin, Right? And you start to teach that. That is where it really becomes problematic. Okay? So that's my issue. 
if the Pope were to release another document and say, we now approve of same-sex marriage, we believe that it, we need to bless it, that would be the line. All right, I hope that's helpful. God bless. Have a wonderful week.